Okay, so anybody that's um, entering, this is sort of like um, an airplane flight. Um, um, you're on a flight to um, Las Vegas. If you're not going to Las Vegas, you better get off the plane. This is the poetry forum. If you're not here for prose and poetry reading, you've got to jump out of the pool. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Everybody's welcome to stay. I'm just being funny. I'm going to turn some more lights on. Oh, blind people don't need lights. Oh, no, we got enough light here. We got the light of our we actually have magnetism. Here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to come around. No, I won't either. Uh-huh. Ready? Okay. We have plenty of light in here. There's oh, lots I, of... I put on a couple more lights. All right. Yeah, we have plenty of light now. Let's see. Check. Which is great because that way I can Check. see what I'm doing here. Okay, I'm going to uh, start taking names anyhow. You're taking names. I'm taking names. Uh, and anybody whose name gets on my list goes to the principal's office. Here Larkin. She's putting her teacher's hat. I'm never going to get battled. Yes. You will be marked absent. We will apply the Board of Education. No, never mind. We'll have your head. <laughs> okay. Did you get my name? No. Oh, Poetry Forum. Okay, so let's see. Who, uh, who do we have? Um, who wants to go first? Here Larkin. Kira. How do you spell your name? K I R A? K I R A. Larkin. L A R K I N. Yeah. And you are from? Salt Lake City, Utah. Okay. I should know that. I'm here here. Yes, you've been in Utah. And are you reading? In this, I can I am reading this. Good. All right. Who's next? Uh, well, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, John Dashney. From Salem, Oregon. That's right. Salem, Oregon. You're reading, right? Are you reading? Of course, you're reading. Okay, I answered that question. Okay. <laughs> there's, there's a guy over here named Herb that's trying to. Oh, Herb. Put me down somewhere. G U G E N H E. We will be. Are you, you're, where are you from? Washington, D.C.? Yes. Yeah. Oh, my bad. And you are definitely reading, right? Okay, who's next? Go ahead, Joe. Go ahead, Vic. Huh? Go ahead. What's your, you say your name? Uh, Joe Sorensen. Joe Sorensen. Yes, he's reading. And S-O-N? S-O-N, yeah. Albuquerque. Mm-hmm. Yeah, same place. Yeah. And you're reading. Yeah. As 
See, I'm Do making... we have to sign up to read, or how does it work? Well, I need, yes, I need to I... know so that I can see what you are. And you have tickets? Yeah, yeah I'll tickets. Them right here. Okay, I'll take them. Okay, you can have them. <laughs> and they sit them anywhere. And who just came in? Anywhere. Oh, Could I have um, whoever's name? Oh, yeah, hang on. She's writing. She's doing oh, it. Oh, I'm signing uh, you in. Who just walked in? That my Schultz, S C H U L T Z. No, 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 just S C H U L Z. Okay, where are you from? Where? You are reading? Yeah. Oh, I don't know. Oh, yeah. We make time for everybody. Okay. And who else was there? Mike? And that's my sweetie, Mike Gorman. Oh, Mike, how you doing, Carla Hayes? Oh, it's so nice to see you. Yeah, I know. Who's that? Oh, hi, Carla. Hi. I travel by And you're myself. also in Berkeley? I have a friend here that's coming to... Paul, attention. How are you doing, Carla? Great. How are you? I was yes. listening to your show. I tried to email you, but Which one? Work out. Are you reading tonight, Mike? This is it right here. Yeah. Uh, what? This is it right here. Who decided not to? Oh, you need to help him. Yeah. Yeah, he's asking me. I just had my tickets. Let me say hi. That one. That one? Yeah. Oh, how are you doing? Okay, how are you doing? Yes, you Fine. should. Fine. So What's it doing there? There we go. He gave it to me. That's not what you said. Oh, you gave it to him. I held your ticket. That's why I was asking. Oh, that's why I couldn't find it. I was trying to ask. I told you that earlier. I can't think anymore. Okay. Oops. Wow. This is for my dad. And then how much is it? Five. Five? Did somebody new enter the room? There. So we get a seat, Dad? Your name and where you're from? Uh, oh, I'm not reading. I'm just yeah. with my dad. Okay. Do we read from oh, okay. I'm, gonna, I'm making a list of people that aren't reading. Not reading. Okay. Not reading. Okay. Not reading. Yeah. Brayden. Spelled. B-R-A-D-E-N. Okay. I know. I know. And your last name? Dashney. Oh. 
I know who you are. <laughs> That's a different name. Or I, I think you're related to somebody we know. Yeah, that might be. <laughs> oh, my last name? Oh. Um, shall we go sit down? Sure. Did you okay. hand in your ticket or your money? Yep. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> 
Spice in the joint. It's a long track. Then we get to track it back again. Will there be time to read more than one thing? Yeah. Four. I'm counting readers. Four. Well, it's two different towers. But, but we used to have to go all the way down. Uh, she's counting. She had to help coming. First floor to the fifth floor. I think last time. We have about seven readers if I if I read. I don't have to read. We've got seven readers so far. Mine get there one day. Has everybody um, signed in, given me their name, and given in tickets? I guess I should wait for J There we go. Okay. Um, we have a couple of choices. You can come up to the podium and or we can have a runner to uh, take the mic around. So I'm going to leave it up to the individual readers. How's that sound? So I'll just wait one more minute or so. We've got some runners. Marathon people. Four, four tree, yeah. And you got tickets or I'm right here. Okay. I'm taking them. And what's your name? Last I checked, it was Michael Biden. Oh, and you're going to read. Michael, what's up, buddy? I'm right here. The you have the same ticket? Yeah. Where are you from, Michael? I should know. Kansas. 
Topeka, Kansas. I said T-O-P-E-K-A. And you're reading it. And you are reading Yes, you are reading Yes, you told me you were. We got more men and women reading this time. Hey, you got more readers this time, too. Yeah, we do. I think we're up to Yeah, I think we're up to eight. Oh, you did. Well, there can't be any sparse and sparks. Oh, that was pretty hot. Yeah, no sparse and sparks. That was pretty hot. You didn't answer my question. Oh, yes? Are you on resolutions right now? No, that's why I get to come here this year. You decide to come here and read some resolutions. Oh, uh, Larry, you're, you're, you're here too, right? You're not going to read, you're just doing audio? Yeah. yeah. He's our audio guy. Our audio engineer. Somebody's got to Somebody's got to do it, right? So uh, you, came, um, you came to read all the resolutions, right? To come in? Oh, no. <laughs> oh, yeah, I tried to put resolutions into poetry. <laughs> well, I wrote a poem about resolutions. I've oh, had them in a couple of my parody songs, too. Yeah. Over the years. Oh, yeah, I remember when I still have archives. Well, I don't know if our friend um, JC is back yet. He will, maybe he's got to run out. He had to run up to, probably up to his room to go get his room. Yeah, that's what he said. To get his tickets. I'll get him when he gets, when he comes in. Okay. Will this go out on it's ACB fine. radio? Uh, it's being recorded, so it'll go out later. I'll okay. get him when he comes in. Okay. That that way you can center it first, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh gosh. Well, do we want to get started? Yeah, yeah, that's all right, Carl. I'll get him. I'm going to start to record Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the 2017 edition of the um, Prose and Poetry reading of FIA. I hope that um, you have all um, thought about being poetic or of having something of a narrative quality that you want to read. I've gotten several readers so far, and how this is going to work is we'll um, get people to come up and and read. Um, I'm going to try to to space you out the best I can. We have more men than we have women this time, which is really interesting. A lot of readers, and that always makes me feel really good. So let's see, where do we want to start? Okay, um, why don't we start for a lead-in? How about with Joe Sorensen from Albuquerque, New Mexico? Now, are you going to want to come to the podium? Okay, because I'm going to give everybody a choice of whether you want to come up or sit down and have a runner run the mic to you. So, what's the easiest way for him to come? He's heading up the aisle. Okay. I am coming to the I thought you already walked the aisle. Yes, well, I did, he did that twice. Twice. <laughs> 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 
later. I walked the aisle twice. Oh, wow. And you wow. can describe our book to it. Carla, do you need a chair? Yeah, I'd like to put a chair up oh, yeah. just to sit on. Is that her? Let's yes. see. Oh, here is a book. Hi, Michael. Hello. Here, here is here. a chair. Yeah, yeah I, I can stand up here. Okay. So. I know you were here this year. I am. Yeah. Yeah. So what are you going to read to us? Yes, just wonderful. Uh, if I could read just two two short little poems. Okay. And I, I have some news. Oh, Let's see. Do. Oh, here's the microphone. Oops. Oh yeah. Hello. I, I like the microphone. Okay. This is Joe Sorensen, Albuquerque, New Mexico. We have some good news. Ellen and I have published our first original book of poetry. Ellen and Joe and Ellen and Sorensen original books book of poetry. We are self-published. A lot of artists that way are self-published at first. So uh, it's not in Braille yet because since we are self-published it costs money. Anyway, so and the other exciting thing is we are members. In fact, I, as far as I know, we are the only two blind people in the state of Men, New Mexico who are members of the Albuquerque Chapter Poetry Society. And we attend chapter meetings and workshops. And we went to a state convention. And attending workshops is is such a terrific because we learn to do even more with creative writing. Okay, two short little poems. This one is called An Angry TV Viewer. A man comes home from work, from a long day's work. He sits down on the couch to relax and watch some TV. But he turns it on, and what does he find? Nothing but reruns on all the stations. This makes him angry. All he is thinking is, oh, no, not again. He wants to throw the remote across the room. But he doesn't, because he doesn't want to break it. So he quietly puts it down and turns it off. What does he do next? He reads a book. Okay, now, this next one is called a library, librarian. This, this is a result of attending to one of the workshops. So, anyway, this short little dramatic presentation called Librarian. I enjoy history, so I thought I would go to the library to research the history of broadcasting. There was a librarian, and she said in a quiet, soft voice, Sir, what are you looking for? I said just as quietly, articles on the history of broadcasting. A gentleman near me started an argument with a loud, stern voice. He said, Who was the greatest comedian? I said, Hush, it's Fred Allen. So he said in a much louder voice, No, Jack Benny! Now, the librarian, still in her quiet, soft voice, Hush, 
please be quiet. The greatest comedian is Jack Benny. Thank you. You know, that was, that was really good. That was really, really good. And I, I, he was using his radio voice. Yeah. Okay, let's see. Who are we going to have next? You know, I think maybe we should hear from another gentleman since we have so many gentlemen tonight. And I would like to bring forth um, somebody that is has been with us a long time, and I'm glad when he always, you know, I'm glad when he comes back because to me, when I think of FIA, he is one of the ones that I think of, and that is Mr. Herb Guggenheim, also a published author, and he is from Washington D.C. You going to come up? Yes. Okay. Good. Don't applaud, just throw money. Um, Before you get started, Herb, I I forgot to do this. Did anybody have any comments about Joe's poetry? I want to give anybody a chance. I'm sorry, Herb. Okay, then you're on. Okay. All right. Um, I usually read poetry at the showcase, so I'm going to depart from that a little bit and read a piece of prose here. This is from the novel that I'm currently working on. It's called The Nothingness Imperative, and uh, the main character in the novel is a 60-year-old English college English teacher um, named Skip Gershwin. And... Uh, He's in this particular scene. This really doesn't have so much to do with the plot as it does have to do with um, the character and the background of the character and what he's doing for an occupation. I'll wait. I'll wait for a moment. Is everybody having a good time at the convention? Good. You're not? I'll sign you in after our next reading. Okay. We've already uh, started, but uh, just relax and... Um, our reader right now is, is Herb Guggenheim from Washington, D.C. Okay, here we go. Here's the chapter from my book. Sc- school had been in session for about three weeks, and my students and I were falling into a routine. I'd walk into the classroom and engage them in light conversation for five or ten minutes <laughs> or until the last straggler straggled in, whichever came first. Before we get started, are there any questions? Marcel Miller raised his hand. Yes, Marcel. The question I have is, can old people be funny? (laughs) What makes you ask that? Well, all the old people I know are serious as shit. Am I old? (laughs) 
you're not young. I'm funny, aren't I? Not really. I don't bring any levity into the classroom. I don't know about levity, but I don't find myself laughing. I have a question, Dorrit Little said. Let's hear it. You think you're great, don't you? What do you mean by that? I mean, you come in here all pumped up like you're going to impart some definite wisdom. And then what do you do? I don't know. What do I do? Teach? You spend an hour talking about comma splices. An entire hour on comma splices, said Dorrit. Exactly my point, Marcel said. There isn't anything funny about comma splices. Hearing an hour lecture on comma splices does not fill me with mirth. In fact, the thesis of my next essay is going to be Old People Aren't Funny, and I'm going to do it just like you told us to. I'm going to cite three examples of old people who think they're funny, but who are sorely mistaken in this regard. You're going to be my first example. <laughs> Maybe I used the wrong word. Maybe I should say I'm witty, not necessarily Jim Carrey funny. If you think you're so witty, say something witty. Okay, here's a joke. An Irishman walks out of a bar. I waited. Total and complete silence. I don't get it, Dorrit Little said. Me either, Marcel said. Explain it to us. Okay, well, there's a stereotype about Irish people that they're all big drinkers. And they're not, are they? Asked Dorrit righteously. No, not all Irish people are big drinkers. Okay, Marcel said. So your premise is false. Yes, but it's a joke. Jokes don't really have premises like informal logic. Then what? What do you mean? Explain the rest of the joke. Okay, so there's a kind of standard joke setup. Three men walk into a bar, or it can just be a man walks into a bar. Is it ever a woman, Dorrit asked? Sometimes it can be a woman, sure. Anyway, so there's this setup of someone walking into a bar. So when you reverse it and say, an Irishman walks out of a bar, and that's the whole joke, it confounds our expectations. First, we're expecting someone to walk into a bar, and we're expecting the joke to continue from that point forward. Second, we're expecting an Irishman to walk into a bar, not out of one. Third, like I said, we're expecting there to be more to the joke. So when we hear an Irishman walks out of a bar and then nothing else, it confounds our expectations. It takes a second or two for the irony to sink in. Once it does, we're surprised and delighted by the incongruities, and we laugh. I looked at the class expectantly. Nobody said anything. <laughs> Finally, I said, Earl, what do you think? About what? <laughs> About either the joke itself or my explication of it. It was all right. What, the joke or my explication? To tell you the truth, I wasn't paying attention. <laughs> I was texting my girlfriend. I was about to admonish him, but before I could speak, Maurice Blaylock said, 
Tell another joke. Okay, here's a riddle. What did the Buddhist monk say to the hot dog vendor? What? Make me, I started, wait, 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 hold up. First off, why is it a Buddhist monk, asked Marcel. You shouldn't make fun of people's religions, Mr. Gershwin, Dolly Salvador said. Who says I'm making fun of anybody's religion? You could have just said a monk. There's no need to make any distinction beyond that. That's right, Earl said. I haven't told the punchline of the joke yet. I mean, you could have said a Franciscan monk, a Carmelite monk, a Carthusian monk, a Hindu monk. It could have been any one of a hundred different kinds of monks, Marcel said. It's a Buddhist monk, I said. You, you say Buddhist, but there are hundreds of varieties of Buddhism. Theravada, Mahayana, Zen Buddhism, Nishiren Shoshu Buddhism. It was a Buddhist monk. Go ahead and tell the joke, someone said. Yeah, let the man talk, someone else said. What did the Buddhist monk say to the hot dog vendor? We don't know, Professor Gershwin. What did the Buddhist monk say to the hot dog vendor? Make me one with everything. <laughs> silence. More silence. Can you explain that to us? Well, first of all, there's the incongruity of a Buddhist monk going up to a hot dog salesman. You think of Buddhist monks as having healthier diets than that. <laughs> Keep going, or is that it? It just ends. No, the monk says, make me one with everything. It's a play on words. See, Buddhist monks want to reach nirvana. What's that? asked Earl. Nirvana is when you reach reach a state of total enlightenment, Marcel said. Marcel is exactly right, I said. Nirvana is a state of total enlightenment. Enlighten me about this joke. That's the only enlightenment I want right now. Theoretically, when you become enlightened, you become one with the universe. So when the monk says, make me one with everything, it's a play on words. When you order from a hot dog vendor, you say, make me one, meaning one hot dog, with everything, meaning all the stuff you put on a hot dog, ketchup, <laughs> mustard, pickles, pickle relish, etc., etc. I like to squeeze lemon juice on my hot dogs, Earl said. Uh, anyway, so the monk is saying simultaneously, make me one hot dog with everything on it, and make me one, capital O, with the universe. In other words, merge me with the universe. So you laugh because the monk is making a very commonplace remark to the hot dog vendor, and at the same time making this spiritual statement about his desired state of being. Mr. Gershwin, Marcel said, I understand what you're saying and all, but that just doesn't strike me as funny. Me either, said Dorrit Little. I'm with them, Earl said from the back of the classroom. Thank you. I'm not going to make the same mistake I made when anybody liked to offer some con, you know, comments. 
Oh, Any questions? That's really good. Where's the book coming out? My other book is out, my other novel is out, but this novel is still in progress. What's your first novel? It's called Violations of Causality, and it just was a finalist in a contest, but I didn't win the contest. <laughs> Hey, but he read an excerpt from it at the uh, showcase last year, which was a very entertaining uh, excerpt. It, uh, if you're interested in the novel, I've got uh, it's available in audiobook from audible.com. And I'll be happy to give you, if you know how to use Audible or you can figure it out, I'll be happy to give you a code and you can get a free copy. Oh, I'm not first book. Now, are you reading it? No, I am not reading it. Oh, a professional reader is reading it. Audible is a separate. It's like it's like talking books for people who can see who don't get free talking books yeah. from the library. Yeah, you have to purchase each book separately. Yeah, but. You should either um, get it from me for free or um, <coughs> purchase it for however little, however little money it costs. <coughs> I don't know. But does anybody, did anybody want to say anything about the, the actual piece? Oh, that was beautiful. I just wanted to know, I had a question. Where, how do you um, create your characters? Because you've got some pretty colorful characters. And, and did this come from any particular experience, or was it imaginary? Well, I was an English teacher at one time. Oh, but right. but that, nothing, that never happened. That never happened in my class. But, uh, <laughs> but it, it, uh, I think you take parts of yourself, and you put them in characters, and then you take parts of other people and put them in other characters. Yep. But you don't, the, the beautiful thing about writing is you don't have to make the characters, um, you don't have to make that one-to-one -one corresponding corresponding with, um, with you. So you can take, let's say you messed something up, you can have the character do it right in the novel, you know? Or uh, let's say you had a relationship that went bad, you can have that relationship resolve itself in the novel. You can do anything you want. Yes. Mix, mix people up, mix ideas up. Then if you have a relationship, do you do you do you then change the names? So oh yeah. Oh yeah. You almost have to unless you want to. Yeah. I mean, first of all, they're not they're never drawn from just one person, and second of all, uh, yeah, you don't want to use anybody's real name. No, that's unless not a good idea. A, unless they're a celebrity or something, then you right. can use their real name. Well, I want to say that I see bits and pieces of her, but. I do too. Yeah. In all of the characters he creates, but that's yeah. not in any way to suggest a singular dimensionality, because all of his characters are so vivid and so different, and allow you to develop a mental picture of that individual. I think it's one of the strong points of him as a writer. Thank you. I like it that it's not overstated, and that's what what makes it good. You know how to do that balance because you could easily, with these kind of, uh, especially pupils and stuff, the, the minute it was overstated, it wouldn't work, and this didn't. It just stayed right on that 
that. Yeah, I like Herb's subtlety in his writing. Yeah, I want to add one, one other thing about characters, which is that it's good to give characters flaws because nobody wants to read about perfect. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So your characters need to have flaws. And conversely, characters um, it shouldn't be totally evil either. I don't think that's my own personal. They should have even evil characters need to have some good qualities. I just want to say I love the creativity and oh, good. Uh, and, and, and just the imagination is just. Oh, I do too. I do too. Okay. Uh, no, I didn't. I didn't make up the monk joke. The monk joke is floating around on the internet everywhere. Okay. All righty. I think we had a newcomer to the room, um, Amber. Amber, what is your last name? S-T-E-E-T. E-E-T. And where are you from? I'm from Inland Empire Chapter in California. Okay. And so uh, what city and state? It's What city? Yeah. Okay, and you're going to read for us? Well, um, I didn't write my own piece, but I, I spent the past few weeks memorizing this one. That's okay. Yeah. That's okay. Well, and did, um, J, did J.C. come back? Okay, so it's J-C-A-G-U-I-R-R-E. And where are you from? Okay. And you're going to read, right? Okay. All righty, folks. I think we need to have a female voice. So let's um, have, how about Maureen Schultz from Berkeley, California. Would you like to come up? Do you want to um, come up or are you going to take the mic? Actually, no, about mic, shouldn't I? Oh, yeah. Okay, Dad. Okay. Thank you very much. Um, so, a short while ago, I wrote an article talking about reasons why one might enjoy being blind. Well, this is the corollary to that piece. Dear God, dear God, just thought I'd tell you, you got this one so wrong. I mean, blind, why? What difference could this have possibly made to you? Would be so much quicker if we didn't need Uber or audio describe. And oh, yeah, when I dropped that thing and it kept rolling away and me crawling around on the floor, were you watching? Dear God, free will, are you serious? You made it all, with our help. Ice cream and funnel cakes and great bread. I mean the bread alone. But mostly in Germany. What's up with that? And why have these flights got so expensive? (laughs) Dear God, some think you're American. Or at least that we're among the chosen. Well, we get it. It's not just us. But then you do love us, right? You appreciate all we're accomplishing every day. So Donald Trump for president, really? (laughs) Dear God, lots of homelessness here now, and that's just the beginning. We need money here in order to play. You know that. What are you teaching us? 
Dear God, why death? To get to some sort of heaven somewhere? Dear God, it is all here, right now. Real hell for some, and yet the dream, the wish, the ideas for action, for one step closer we could take toward one more moment of heaven here on earth. Dear God, is there, I mean, can we, can I make room, more room for all the good I can't see right now? For the next breath and the next in and out, for expressing what you are and could become in me, for appreciation and gratitude and more love. She's asked questions that all of us who are blind may have asked somehow. You know, every once in a while we all just sort of, you know, maybe vent a little bit. Um, and, and I guess if we wouldn't be human if we, we didn't didn't admit to it even. That's a piece that I would want to read and study, and I find it hard to react to it initially upon hearing it, but that's a compliment to the piece because it's one that you want to delve into more deeply and, and really look at some of those situations that, yeah. and some of, some of the uh, contradictions and, and uh, uh, issues of, of divergence that she describes it. I, I, I need to think about that. And Very thought-provoking. Yeah, very. Okay. Um, so, what, yeah. What it, there are sometimes moments, especially in the middle of the night, that you get into and you have to write your way out of. Yeah. And that's how that came together. So um, was there a particular triggering event that might have um, no. started that, or just a bunch of questions that just sort of added up? Yeah. We all need a sounding board. Yes, we do, and... You know, God is big enough to to understand. Sometimes I've been a little bit too. I think we all do. One thing that I love about this event is that we go from the serious to the sublime. We go from the, you know, sort of heavy to the light. That said, I want to bring back somebody that um, is really... Um, been an FIA for a long time and is a real icon, a real famous person, another published author. How about Mr. John Dashney from Salem, Oregon? Got to quit giving me mics, folks. I might start doing the show. <laughs> 
Here we go. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, the reason I answered no when you were asking right at the beginning is uh, everybody enjoying themselves and having a good time. No, I'm sitting uh, in the uh, exhibit hall, a blank space where all my stuff should be, my books, my CDs, and everything. They were shipped. The uh, hotel acknowledges that they got them, but they can't find them. So I've got nothing out there right now, except apologies from the people uh, down in shipping and receiving. Uh, so maybe this will be ended in the next day or so. Please come by booth seven or eight, check it out, and see if I'm there. Okay, uh, I write poetry. Uh, I also have, if they ever got here, uh, seven books, uh, prose. But this is one, uh, I just wrote this one, it's a little short one, done in the the tune of... Uh, of Ogden Nash. And it's a very short one. If you're not familiar with Ogden Nash, here's a little two-line poem. When called by a panther, don't answer. <laughs> All right. Now, I've, I'm not going to do that, but this is a poem that I wrote when uh, I was listening to one that somebody else wrote. Uh, not here. But he was talking about no-nos, as in, no, no, don't do that. No, no, mustn't, mustn't. Uh, but I thought, not instead of N-O hyphen N-O, how about N-O-S, no, N-O-N-O-S-E, no-nos. <laughs> so I wrote this one about a guy who had the misfortune, which he turned around, of being born with no nose. So it's a story called No Nose Norval. Once upon a time, not so long ago, on a cold winter's night full of rain, sleet, and snow, a baby was born, and his ma cried, Oh no, he has no nose, this cannot be so. Norville Norton, that was his name, and what would become his claim to fame at first was thought as a mark of shame, and no one knew just who was to blame, for there was no nose on his round little face, just two little holes stuck right in the place where his nose should be. Such was the case. His parents thought it an awful disgrace. Oh, what can we do with our dear baby boy? We hoped he would be our bundle of joy. But we must face the facts. We cannot be coy. What possible remedy can we employ? Well, we must seek a specialist, his father then said. Although it will cost us a whole lot of bread, we must patch those holes in our dear baby's head. For without a good hooter, he's better off dead. Yes, a specialist is what you need, the family doctor then agreed. I'll write a referral to Dr. McSneed, the best nose man in the nation indeed. Fear not, cried McSneed, for I have just the nose to put an end to your parental woes. 
I have hundreds to choose from, and as your boy grows, we can fit him each year with a nice brand new nose. So Norval's first nose was marked infant size, and then each Christmas morning when he would arise, he would find in his stocking a yuletide surprise, a custom-made nose, all hand-colored with dyes. And then every summer in June or July, they would visit McSneed, and there they would buy another new nose for their dear boy to try. Oh, how handsome he looks now, his parents would sigh. Well, by the time he was 13, young Norval had grown into 100 pounds of muscle and bone. His face was quite common, if the truth had be known, but when it came to noses, there he stood all alone. He changed his nose daily like others change socks. He had 42 of them packed in a box. Some were quite supple and some hard as rocks, designed to protect him from bumps and from knocks. But when he was 16 and out on a date, poor Norval suffered an embarrassing fate. For a sneeze came upon him. It just wouldn't wait. He tried to contain it, but he was too late. Our Norval cut loose with a mighty, Ah-choo! And into his date's lap his best hooter flew. I'm sorry, cried Norval, if I startled you. Just hand me my nose back. I know we are through. But the girl's name was Gladys. She played in the band, and she said as she held Norval's nose in her hand, Why, this is amazing. Don't you understand? You have the best tutor hooter in all of the land. <laughs> you just hit an incredible note with that sneeze, a perfect high C without even a wheeze. Can you play other notes in different keys? Blow it again, Norval, oh, won't you please? So Norval stuck his nose back into place and blew it again until his poor face turned red with the effort, but producing a brace of harmonic overtones, tenor and bass. Why, this, this, this is fantastic, his girlfriend then cried. Why, with such a hooter, it can't be denied you could make a fortune. All kidding aside, I could listen all evening, she said, and then sighed. Well, it took several sessions with Dr. McSneed to get, over Orville, to get Norval fitted with all he would need. A dozen new noses, each one of them keyed for different instrumentation indeed. <laughs> now his coronet nose he could play in E-flat, and a sliding trombone nose, hey, just fancy that. Woodwinds and piccolos, he had them down pat, and a big bulbous tuba nose he played while he sat. <laughs> now he began his career with the Dixieland band, but his fame quickly spread throughout the whole land, and this was because his repertoire spanned rock to the classics. He played them all grand. Now, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, now he, uh, now he plays to sellouts wherever he goes. He owns houses and cars and scads of new clothes. And what is the moral? Well, it's this, I suppose. Norval made millions by blowing his nose. <laughs>
Thank you. Ogden Nash is, is one of my favorite poets, though I can, I, I can see the style and actually the rhythm of it. It's just, you started with, with reading two lines from, from, from Ogden Nash because what, what you wrote there is such a novelty and it's something that that, that he also would have, would have written. He would have, if, if he was alive, he would have smiled. <laughs> So could you list for the people um, what the names of your books are, John, so that, um, you know, yes, in case uh, they do arrive in a big box? Well, uh, one can always hope. Uh, I have three, uh, I do uh, books for, this is an oxymoron, for older young readers. Uh, the, mainly the 11 to 16 market. Uh, I have three historical novels, Summer of the Hunters, which is about the last great manhunt of the Old West, which began in Salem, Oregon, about eight blocks from where I now live, but it was 1902. Uh, the uh, Faces in the Frames, which is two stories set in the same family, 100 years apart. The chapters alternate between 1863 and 1963. I am familiar with 1963. I lived through that. 1863, no. <laughs> uh, and the other one is the uh, the last of the Whistler, uh, about a boy growing up in a small Oregon town during the last uh, the last days of the Korean War oh, in wow. 1953, and. Uh, he becomes a paper boy for the old Oregon Journal, and I was one. And uh, but it's a story about prejudice and bullying. And you might think this town, well, it was like McMinnville, the town I grew up in, where it was racially totally homogenous. So everybody got along, right, wrong. We would find a group to pick on, and it's a story. About that, it's it's a very bittersweet thing, a, a story about a boy's first crush on a girl, and you know, the first one never comes out right. So, uh, so it's it's kind of a, as I say, a, a very bittersweet book. Uh, if you're old enough to remember the early fifties, uh, in the days before rock and roll. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, and then I do some fantasy adventure. There's one called The King of Messy Potatoes, which is a story about a boy, a story about a man telling his story to his grandson. The grandfather's an Episcopal priest. I had to make him an Episcopal priest or you'd have a little trouble explaining to his grandson otherwise. But, uh, he, but he's not a church pastor. He's, he's a... Uh, scholar. He's a professor in the seminary. And he's supposedly writing this very learned book about the kings of Mesopotamia, which his grandson cannot pronounce. So it all starts one day when the boy says, Grandpa, who is this king of messy potatoes guy you're writing the book Because he can't quite say Mesopotamia. And that's so amuses the grandfather that he sits down with him and starts uh, making up the story. So it's a book about uh, King Spud, 
mythical land of messy potatoes, but it's also a book about the boy and the grandfather and the bond that grows between them as they make these stories together. Uh, anyway, that, there are others, but that's enough. Okay. Well, thank you for sharing. I'm going to get back here to the mic. Thank you for sharing. It's always good to hear from you. Um, I have a lot of respect for you, and I find your work very amusing. Okay, tonight we're going to have a newcomer come to the uh, mic, and somebody I just met this week, in fact. Her name is Amber Steet, and she's from Riverside, California. Now she's going to, um, she'll explain this to you. Yes, the, uh, thank you for giving her a warm welcome. Do you want to um, come to them? You're going to come. Okay, all right. Okay. So I'm not reciting anything that I wrote. It's actually a poem that I'm quite fond of by my new favorite author, H.P. Lovecraft, called Night Gaunts. Based on some experiences he had when he was a child, he was a frequent experiencer of sleep paralysis in which, during these episodes, he would see these entities that are currently called shadow people, but at the time were, he called them night gaunts. So this poem is based on those experiences. <clears throat> Out of what crypt they crawl, I cannot tell. But every night, I see the rubbery things. Black horned and slender with membranous wings they come in legions on the north wind's swell with obscene clutch that titillates and stings snatching me off on monstrous voyagings to gray worlds hidden deep in nightmares well over the jagged peaks of thok they sweep heedless of all the cries i try to make and down the nether pits to that foul lake where the puffed shoggoths splash in doubtful sleep. But ho, oh, if only they would make some sound, or where a face where faces should be found. I spent two weeks memorizing that one. She said the microphone to you. Yeah. You, spent, you spent two weeks um, two weeks memorizing that. Wow. That's, that is beautiful. I like the language. And uh, that's, that's really good. Well, I really like that you were not only memorizing it, but that you put emphasis and emotion into it. It is, but memorization and then recitation is an art. Um, oh yeah, Joe does that a lot. We had a guest speaker, a, a guest program in our church, where there was a gentleman that memorized a lot of the book of um, of Romans, and he did a presentation off the top of his head. It's a dramatic recitation of Romans, and he calls it Romans in the flesh, and it is just. It's just astounding, and it's sort of done um, sort of like Paul would deliver the letters to the Romans, and it was just amazing how that could be, you know. That's interesting. Yeah. Okay, let's come back to Mr. Resolutions himself. Now, okay, whereas Michael Byington has 
a tremendous sense of humor, and whereas we all like to laugh from time to time, therefore be it resolved by everyone here in this poetry, prose and poetry reading that Mr. Michael Byington is going to perform for us. And we do recommend a do pass. So here is your mic. Do with it whatever you wish. Oh, my. Well, thank you. (laughs) Carla, I have to say, that was an introduction I will always remember. Never had one like it. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Probably not. I actually had in mind perhaps to do a couple of things tonight. First of all, to tell you that this is a uh, 32-year-old dream for me to be at this group because for almost the last 32 years running, I have been a member of the ACB Resolutions Committee and was appointed to that committee again this year. But I am in the process of sort of semi-retiring and uh, moving from living two places about 150 miles away to uh, combining my belongings and living one. And somehow I managed to pack all of my portable assistive technology for the move, so there was no reason to be on resolutions because I really wasn't equipped to write anything this year. So I decided at this convention I'm going to have some fun and go to some things that I've always wanted to do but never been able to do because of the resolutions committee meeting. And first and foremost on my list was the prose and poetry readings. So I am absolutely delighted to be here. And I had really thought maybe I'd do a serious piece written by somebody else first, but given Carla's introduction, I think I should start with a piece that I wrote, which I actually wrote about 20 years ago. And I had some music with it, which I tried to play and auditioned for the showcase with it. And although people laughed at the words... They really didn't think I was very much of a musician, and they probably thought that because I'm not very much of a musician. So that's the one time that I have auditioned for the showcase and been turned down. I did perform this at the end of resolutions committee meetings, however, because I was cheering at the time and could do anything I wanted to, (coughs) and uh, uh, some of them seemed to enjoy it. But I hadn't thought about it in about 20 years. And when I realized I could actually come to prose and poetry this year, I got it out and did some revisions to bring it up to full date. And it's a narrative poem which uh, covers a good bit of my life. And it's called, What to Call That Thing Down There? I call it a historical, a historical narrative poem by Michael Byington. Uh, when I was just a wee tot, I stayed with my Aunt Louise, and I sat upon her toilet with my shorts around my knees. Now keep your chugger pointed downward, just in case you'd up in peas, because I don't want you squirting my new wallpaper, if you please. Well, now, Aunt Louise is now long dead, and you know I miss her because I dug her. See, she's the aunt that taught me 
that that thing down there was my chugger. <laughs> but then when I got to first grade, the other boys invited me to join this secret club they had researching the pee-pee. And when I said that what a pee-pee was did not to me occur, they explained it was that thing down there that I'd been calling my chugger. Well, the answer to this question became one from which I could not defer. Was that thing my pee-pee or was it my chugger? The answer to this question truly did my mind besmirch, so I decided I'd have to do some more research. So that evening in the bathroom, in the shower with my dad, I gave his chugger a couple of yanks and asked him what he called that thing he had. He said, that is my wingding and you better leave it alone. And by the way, in case you're inclined, you might go blind if you tug upon your own. Uh, I only tugged on mine a little bit. That's why I'm just legally blind. <laughs> well, then I got to high school in 1968 when Nixon ran for president and before Watergate. I'd reached puberty and that thing down there stood up just like a stick. And this sophomore girl, she saw the bulge and called it my tricky dick. She was a little bit more experienced than I was. If I'd have played my cards right, I might have gotten a Humphrey. Humphrey, that's the 1968 model political joke. <laughs> well, then I went to college to a co-ed dormitory. And I met this little freshman girl who majored in psychology. She called that thing down there Sigmund and called her Vagina Freud. And the putting the name together was an activity we enjoyed. <laughs> well, I graduated from college into marriage. I did go. And my bride called that thing down there her own personal private show. Bill Clinton called his Slick Willie as he shared it with Hillary. And I'd have said Monica or Jennifer, but they don't rhyme with Slick Willie. But Bill is now old news, and our president is Trump, who brags to the press incessantly about the size of his crotch bump. <laughs> and as for me, well, I'm old and my hair is white and gray, but I am proud to tell you now that I live each and every day. I still don't know what to call that thing, and it really makes me dizzy. But if I survive to 105, I still hope I can call it busy. <laughs> you know, that is a historic, <laughs> that's a historical <laughs> And now on, on the serious side, before you dissect that... <laughs> if you choose to do so. Uh, there's something I used to do, oh gosh, I think the last time I did it anywhere was about 15 years ago, but I still have it memorized. 
It was the words to the song on a flip side of uh, uh, a single that came out by uh, the people back in about 1965. And the, the, the hit song was called, I Love You. But on the back side of that, they had a song which I thought had rather profound words. I can't say that I understand what it means, but I've always enjoyed trying to figure it out. And it was called, Somebody Tell Me My Name. And I worked that up into an interpretive piece that I used to do for some coffee houses back during the time when hippies went to coffee houses and read things like that. So, you know, take your uh, mind back to sitting in a probably kind of smoky bar uh, involvement, but no alcohol, just coffee on the table. Everyone's sitting there, and some of the smoke may not smell exactly like what was legal back then, but is now in a few venues anyway. And uh, everybody got up and read profound poetry that nobody understood. The fellow that wrote this was a songwriter named David Friedkin. As I wandered through this city, in a nameless town I walked, now I've got this empty feeling, names on sidewalk scribed in chalk. The flower people cannot talk. Can this be a city's tombstone, broken neon signs that say, Happy days are here forever. I think I'm in a play. So let me think about today. What will become of me now that I'm here? When will the crowd give a cheer? Have you got the time of day? It doesn't bother me. The time I've got could fill a day in one eternity. It seems so strange it doesn't change. There's no one here but me. I wouldn't like to take the chance and ruin reality. So long ago the city roared, it filled me inside out. Today I find an empty piece I shatter with my shout. Look into windows where people have been. No one expected to win. Climbing stairs to reach the ending of a life that's been a sham. City, why should I expect to wander? City, won't you take this man? No one's left to lend a hand. Everything happens when nothing's the same. Somebody tell me my name. Thank you. Wow, two very different pieces. Uh, well, now if he were um, Chuck Berry, he'd be talking about my dingaling. Maybe. 1972? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. You you brought back some good memories, too. 1968. Actually, I think that's when I Love You came out. But anyhow, um, I think we need to hear a female voice, a good friend of mine, who has read many times for us, and I've always found her poetry very, very provocative. And very, very interesting, and a lot of symbolism. 
So before I um, make more suspense for you, let me call Kira Larkin from Salt Lake City, Utah. I think there's one on the wall just behind it. I see something dark on the panel down there. Yeah, I don't know. Go to right. You want to go forward and then follow the wall. If it won't reach, I'll give you my chair. How about that? Either way. Oh, I can do that. Oh, it's going to fit. It's going to reach. Oh, yeah. The room's bare. Note taker battery's about. Hold on. Shot. It's an um, apex. Yeah, I, I asked them if the uh, if they had any batteries with them this year, and they said, "No, we didn't bring any." And I went, "What's your apex's name?" Uh, the grill. Not, oh, it doesn't have a name. <laughs> where's the Where's the microphone? Am I talking to the microphone? The microphone is. We'll see you later. Oh, there we go. I need to bring it down, so I'm so short. <laughs> okay, so um, the piece I'm going to share with you is actually a scene from a story I'm working on. And in this story, um, it starts out with a young girl, probably in 13th or 14th year, getting locked in a room at a um, home for troubled, troubled kids. And she wants to know why they're locking her in, and, and she's told, well, when you're, you're a very sick young lady, when, you, when you're feeling better, you can come out and, and be around other people. And she tells about how she got there and how it all started with a, with a long white box that had a red and a white rose in it that was delivered to her mother one summer day about nine months before, and that it, there was a note that said, remember your promise. And then other things happen. And then one night, um, a centaur comes to the door, and there are pixies and little fairies, and um, she's able to turn herself invisible so they can't see her. And when she wakes up, she gets hit with, an, with a little poison-tipped arrow as she goes invisible. And when she wakes up, her family is gone, and there's some spots of blood on the floor. And when she tells the police what happened, they don't believe her. And she breaks down during her first therapy session. And this is the scene after they've given her um, a sedation medicine. The medication they give me leaves me in a fog that I can't quite shake. I can't use any of my powers for two days. I try to change shape or disappear or reach outside to see the, the surrounding countryside. But I can't because of the meds. Mid-morning of the third day after they drugged me, I lay on my back on my bed. I am clear-headed and thankful that the fog has lifted. Someone had said while I was drugged that a lower dose could make me less jumpy and able to feel better. No thank you, I think now. I have no desire to live in a, in a fog like that all day, every day. Over the past two days, I had been allowed to leave my room to eat lunch with other patients, watch a movie in a community sitting room, and visit a library for books. With breakfast, however, had come the message that I am not to leave my room at all during that day. 
They want to observe me without the effects of meds to see how I cope. Observe me while I'm in my room, I think. How can they do that? I'm locked in, and I'm having no contact with anyone except for the worker who brings my food. I lay still and let fingers of sunlight touch my legs. I relax and let my eyes roam the room, looking at the ceiling, the walls, the furniture. Suddenly, a slight glitter catches my eye. It is in the upper left-hand corner of the room. I turn on my side and look carefully at whatever caught my eye. Is that what I think it is, I ask out loud. Of course there is no answer because I am alone. I get up and pull the the desk chair over to the corner. I climb up on it to get a better look. Sure enough, it's what I thought. A camera lens is staring me in the eye. You have to be kidding me, I think. They've been watching me this whole time with a camera. But wait, this one camera would only show a small portion of the room. So I go on a hunt. Fifteen minutes later, I've found six cameras in the room itself and two in the bathroom. I am furious. They'll be observing me. I am, I am very sick. I have been lying about what happened. During my therapy session three days ago, right before my breakdown, the doctor said I was lying and that I needed to tell the truth about my family's disappearance. So they want proof, do they? I'll give them proof. I walk to the window and slide it open. It is one of those that slides from side to side. It'll be a tight fit, but I can make it work. I check the screen and see that there is no way to push it out of place. Very well, I think. It's showtime. I concentrate very hard, and the change happens almost immediately. I am a griffin. I am still very young in griffin years, but I'm about a third my adult size. I reach up a clawed front paw and slash the screen across the bottom and up the sides. The screen flaps there in the window. I crouch and launch myself onto the windowsill. Either nobody is watching me right now or they are taking their time coming to get me. Outside the window is a six-inch ledge. I perch there with my eagle head looking Eagle head poking out the window. My haunches. Um, my haunches on the windowsill while my front paws rest on the ledge outside the window. I gaze out at the grounds of this home for disturbed youth. The grass and the trees are green. Flowers are blooming and there is a slight breeze. I can smell the fish that are swimming through the stream. The mice and rabbits hiding in the small forest in back of the home, and can see for miles. And the minute I crouch there, my entire life as a griffin floods through my mind. For the most part, humans have no memory of baby and toddlerhood. Griffins, however, can remember everything from the day they are born. I am a tiny kitten with, um, with tiny nubs on my shoulders where my wings will grow. I am mewing piteously. Where are my parents? Where are my kitten litter mates? Gentle hands hold me, and a kind voice says, Change back. Come on. Change back. And suddenly I am a screaming baby being held in strong, gentle arms. I am a little older. My wings have sprouted, and I long to use them. 
The same kind person holds my four paws in one hand and pumps her arm up and down. Reflexively, I spread my tiny wings and flap them. After a time, she tells me to change back. I do, and I'm hungry and cranky and want to sleep. I am a little older now. The person holds me with all four paws on her open palm. I can see a flat surface about four feet from us, a, ca- uh, a counter, I think, in my griffin brain. I have no idea how I know this, but I do. Okay, go ahead, little one. Fly, fly. I am tossed gently into the air and reflexively flap my wings. I meow in fear as I land, paws skittering on the countertop. Very good. Now come back. Come on. I meow and walk to the edge of the counter. Come on. You can do it. I jump off and am suddenly falling. But then, but then reflex kicks in, and I fly to this person. I land on her shoulder, all four claws digging in um, into the cloth and flesh underneath. Ouch! Careful there! By the time I was five, I knew that I was that griffin. My mom and I talked about the power in me, and she explained that sometimes the fairy folk choose an unborn child to bestow a gift upon. I had been chosen, and my gift was the power to be a griffin. My mom would take me up into the mountains for two weeks during the summer and on school holidays and weekends. She didn't take me all the time, just once in a while on weekends. But it was our time, a time for me to become a griffin and be able to fly free without the neighbors wondering what I was or who I was or report me to the police. It was a time for me to just um, be my magical self. I cannot describe the feeling of being able to soar through a clear blue sky and then dive into a lake and spear a fish with my claws. I cannot describe being able to see the movement of a tiny mouse and pinpoint exactly where and when I should strike. And the wonderful feeling of flying over a snow-covered mountain through the freezing air and then back to the cabin where I was staying with my mom to curl up by the fire like a cat. And later, when I changed back, eating pan-fried trout that I had brought back after eating my fill to the cabin to share with my my mother. I shake myself. If I sit here too long, they'll come and capture me. I must be off. They want proof and I reach over to a dragging wing feather and pull it free. It pinches just a little, but it needs to be done. These things can get in the way. I turn my head back over my left shoulder and let the golden feather drop to the floor. When they come in to get me and find I'm gone, all that will be left is the video of my changing and one feather that is as soft as down. With a loud, long, I launch myself off the ledge. It is a little bit of a tight squeeze, and I am afraid for an instant that I will get stuck in the window. But I jerk free, and I'm falling from the third-story window. Then my wings are fully extended, and I am soaring up, up, and up into the blue sky. I hit an air current and let it carry me towards the trees at the back of the property. I am free, and I am off to find where the centaurs and fey folk have taken my family.
symbolism? I don't know. This griffin thing really fascinated me. What, what uh, I don't know. It's just it's something that came to me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that she's she's got this power that um, essentially she learns has been passed on to her by her mother, who is Faye. I just love how you transformed us all into that, and it was just—it was like we were right there, you know, experiencing it. I was awesome. entranced. Wow. Yeah, that was awesome. I was too. And the part of it is too that sometimes we all get trapped by people who tell us one thing or another that isn't true, uh-huh. and we all want to break free and prove to them that. Yes. A few images go through my mind as you were describing the cameras and then what the people were watching you do. Mm-hmm. The one being from the reality that she really does have the power and that she really is turning into a griffin. And the other being from the perspective of, well, this was a, a delusional situation of mental illness and what the people looking through the cameras were actually seeing her do. And I never decided which was the case. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that you intended for me to decide oh. which was the case. And I, uh, no, it's actually the first one. She is. This she is, is really a, It's really she, true. It's, okay. it's really that kind of leaves you wondering which is true. Yeah. 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 I like stories and things like that. Yeah. I still like the ending of The Sopranos. You get to write your own ending. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, that was awesome. But really awesome writing. Okay, now we're going to have a, um, a newcomer to the, uh, the group. I'd like to um, present to you Mr. J.C. Aguari, and he is from Merced, and, um, California. And do you want to come up, or what do you want to do? Let's give him a hand. Let's give him a warm welcome. Thank you, everyone. Drop it. <laughs> okay. All right. Let's see. Okay. <laughs> now, I uh, just want to let you know I'm 14 years old, and this is written from the uh, point of view of a teenager. It's called Wasting Time, and I think it's uh, very uh, poignant about how our young folk act these days. I am the king of time-wasting, spending all my time like it's not even mine. Oh, so valuable, yet I throw it all away. If a minute was a dollar, I'd be broke today. Off in la-la land, too gone to have known, staring all day looking at my smartphone, thinking of what may without a mark on my paper, having such fun, curse that time-stealing taker. Getting nothing done, who cares what I'm missing? Surfing round the net as the clock goes a-tickin'. I'm just a teen with my face up in a screen. What? I can't hear you speak. I'm busy listening to the beat. Oh my gosh, I just got a text. I think I'll go check my Facebook page next. I wake up one day to find my time's passed away. We're missing so much. Use time well while you can. Cause time waits for no one. Woman, child, or man. Thank you.
Are you really 14? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's awesome. That's Thank pretty you. sophisticated. And so we tell them past those years. Yeah. Oh yeah, that is wonderful. That is awesome. You've got a lot of talent. It shows that the, that young talent is right there, and you know, just to carry on from what we as older folks have started. Amen. I gotta say, I really appreciate everything that you've done too, because it's given me insights and stuff that I've been wanting to do. Well, I hope you'll come back. It is, and I hope you'll come back. Mm-hmm. I hope you're having fun. One of the best sessions we've gone to. Yeah. Okay, now we're going to have somebody who's another dear friend of mine. And what a coincidence. It's somebody that has the same last name as somebody else that just performed. I, do we want to guess? Somebody else that just performed earlier in the evening. I shouldn't say just performed, but somebody who performed. And her name is Ellen Nolan Sorensen. All right. Uh, yeah. It's too high. It's too high. The mic, not me. No. In fact, if you could hold it for me, that would be. That would be great, because I have to read read this. Okay, folks, I've got a series of haikus for you. Yeah, um, now we went to to a haiku workshop, and um, this was kind of fun, because you know how back in school when you did five, seven, five, you had to count syllables and all that lovely stuff. Well, we found out that this is a newer way of doing it, where you can use um, the short, long, short. So I thought, okay, this would be good. And I got my inspiration just sitting there waiting for a ride to go home from these, from these um, workshops. So anyway, this is kind of appropriate for... Um, Weather-related deals. Anyway, I wrote this first one. is called Springtime. And uh, this one was... Uh, we actually... <laughs> this actually happened. But anyway, here we go. Springtime by Ellen N. Ellen N. Sorensen. Springtime by... Uh, let me hang on. Just a minute. Just, okay. Okay. Springtime. Wind in my face. Not too cold. Springtime. Wind in my face. Not too cold. Next one is summertime. And uh, this one, I think we all can relate to this. Summertime. Green grass all around. Much too hot. Summertime. Green grass all around, much too hot. And I think that's all I've got here, just these two.
No, you're welcome. Yeah, I'm glad to do it. Now you got to write one. Talk to oh, my wait. ear. Talk to my uh, later. Yeah, you got to do that. Yay. Okay, well, we've had quite, we're having quite an evening here. Um, it is about 10.26, and is there anybody that I have missed that, that has not read or wants to read or wants to read anything else? Because I'm debating on whether I want to read or not. <laughs> yeah. I'd like to read a poem. Okay, sure, sure, why don't you? Uh, by the way, the first book, I have it here in my hand. Um, the, it's got a, a, I can describe the cover to you, and it has, for those of you that can see a little bit, um, I'm holding it up, or I can bring it around for anybody that wants to look at it. Um, the picture in the middle, well, the book, the, this book has, it's a variety of original poems by Ellen and Joe Snorton. Okay, now, the picture is of the two of us that was taken by a friend of ours with her, with her cell phone and it came out really awesome. And then um, there's some uh, print at the uh, bottom of there, the front cover. And... We are selling these, so if anybody wants $5 book, and if anybody wants to um, check it out or whatever, we will be at the uh, Friends, we will be at the luncheon, at the Friends at Art luncheon. And then also, if you want to get a hold of us, you can uh, call the room at uh, 2630 and leave a message. Or you can call my cell phone at 505-410-5918. Or email E-L-L-E-N-8-7-1-0-8 at gmail.com. Okay. So I was inspired by Michael's poem. Um, I don't... I, uh, it definitely stuck out. <laughs> Um, this is this is this is a poem um, not really in the same vein but I think you'll get the connection this is called Beverly it's 2.49 a.m. and on your way to the bathroom to pee you feel a kind of squish as you step barefoot into a small mound of cat vomit And for some reason, you remember Beverly, that girl you knew when you were 15. How when she got out of the back of her older brother's truck, you thought, oh my God, she's too good looking to date. She, with her straight blonde hair and tight hip-hugger jeans, looking for all the world like the girls at the beach who spent their days laughing at guys like you. For some reason, she thought you were okay in your homemade dashiki and double-knit tan slacks. 
And after four hours of anxious talk, you got your nerve up and asked if you could kiss her. She said yes and let you run your hands down the length of her straight blonde hair, let you lift her tie-dyed belly shirt and cup her pale white breasts in your hands. One night her parents weren't going to be able to pick her up. They lived 40 miles away. So your parents said that wouldn't be a problem, that Beverly could bring an overnight bag and stay in the guest room. You couldn't sleep all night knowing she was there. At 6 a.m., you stole into her room and woke her up. She said hi in a sleepy whisper and made room for you to lie next to her in that little narrow bed. She was wearing shorty pajamas, and she let you slide your hand inside one of the leg openings, something you had never done before, and you were on the cusp of a violent explosion when prudence dictated that you lock the door. So you staggered to your feet and started trying to quietly get it shut, but the new carpet made it hard to close that door completely, and your father woke up. What's that noise? He said from your parents' bedroom. What's going on out there? Nothing, you said, and crept back to your room with its blacklight posters and model sailboat. Now you're 55, it's 2.49 a.m., and the cat puke is cold. Oh, that was that was so nice. But you know what? You know what struck me about that. Um, and I've been ex- I'm experimenting with this. I don't have anything like it tonight. But um, the use of the second person. The second person can be a very, very. Um, let's say it, it can pull you into the story like no other point of view can do. And you don't see it or hear it that often. And. You know, it's it's very powerful if you do it right. What do you think? What, what do you all think of that? Uh, what do you all think of the... Oh, boy, the cat puke. <laughs> Has that ever happened to anyone? Well, with me, it's a slightly different story. It's dog poop. You know, sometimes sparky. No. Oh, well, I think this is going to the dogs. <laughs> oh, gee. Okay, I think we better bring this back. Huh? <laughs> well, in, unless anybody else wants to read, I always end the evening by reading. And. Uh, sure. I've never been to anything like this before. And what is FIA? And are we going to be able to hear these poems again and get them on paper? Or do you have minutes of this meeting? <laughs> I think we should have a resolution, but...
So you, and there's a luncheon that... There will be a luncheon tomorrow at 12 noon for the Friends and Art. <laughs> and there's a showcase tomorrow night. Actually, Tuesday night, I believe. Is it, is it Tuesday night? Yeah. Yes, it is Tuesday. Oh, okay. kept Tuesday, it on Tuesday. Oh. And there was a oh, MIDI okay. workshop. Okay. But uh, your, the answer to your second question, there are two recordings being made, so they may show up somewhere. You never know. I'm trying to record it, and Mr. Um, Turnbull, who's an expert. Well, this is just a national affiliate, like uh, a you know, special interest affiliate. We don't have any local state ones, but one could be started. Do activities throughout the nation off and on. It really depends on where our members are and what they're reporting. The Friends and Art really was created with two purposes. With two purposes, one was a forum for amateur and professional artists who are blind and visually impaired to have an opportunity to uh, associate with each other and share their work and uh, grow through the experience of meeting other blind artists. And the other was to be a forum for art lovers and appreciators of all types of art to work toward and advocate for more accessibility to all forms of art. And that <coughs> includes museum access, uh, access for uh, people who have visual impairments uh, in accessing uh, theater. We worked a lot with the promotion of audio description basically anything to allow people who are blind and visually impaired to absolutely participate in the full expanse of what the arts experience is. Does that help explain it to some the, of the other guys? Michael, is the, we, is the website still up? The website is still up. Uh, it's uh, www. Help me out, folks Friends. who know this. Friendsinart.com <laughs> And there's the log of the bridge tender. Which is a literary, well, it started out as a, a house organ, if you will, of the, of the organization. But now the people who produce it are wanting to expand and make it not only a report on things such as accessibility in the arts, but also a literary magazine. And, and if you join Friends in Art, we are a membership organization. And at uh, the luncheon tomorrow, I, or I've got them here actually tonight, I can take memberships. I'm the treasurer of, of French and Art. Uh, we try to release two Log of the Bridge tenders each year. I think we only got one out this year. But it, it's a uh, wonderful magazine, which I've never personally had anything to do with editing, but uh, really enjoy every time it comes out. It's, it's uh, it, it really... Represents the advocacy purpose of Friends and Art well in the past, and now I think it's also going to represent some of us who are in the literary arts very nicely. So. And there's also a, a booth in the exhibit hall. Uh, Was it seven and eight? Seven and eight. Hey, I got a good memory, huh? And uh, John Dashney, hopefully, is going to be selling his books uh, down there. We have a wonderful young man who uh, has uh, joined our group who creates uh, tutorials on how to uh, recover and restore 
various artistic pieces. He's a gentleman who is, I believe, totally blind. We have the Friends in Art t-shirts down there. We have two oh, different great versions t-shirts. I saw them. Of them. They are absolutely great t-shirts. I saw the new one. I can't remember what else is down there, but uh, uh, we invite members to share the booth to promote uh, some of their artistic efforts and then uh, they share with FIA some of the proceeds from doing so. If you do nothing else at the convention, you must buy a t-shirt. I'm planning to do that. I guess I'm Great. Most yeah. t-shirts of this kind would cost 30 or $40, but this t-shirt only costs $15. So wow. That is a bargain. Good. I think that, um, you know, I think you would enjoy the organization. I know it. It's been an inspiration to me. And anyhow. Definitely go to the showcase. Yep. Really show you the talent. Right. The membership is $15. You don't get a t-shirt just for that, but you do get the log and you get the uh, pleasure of knowing that you are uh, contributing to the part of ACB that really, I think, as much as any thing that the organization does, reflects the richness and, and the... Uh, the intensity and, and the variety of uh, the lives of people who are blind and low vision. One thing I've always wondered is how did the log of the bridge tender get its name? Somebody in the original annals of Friends and Art can answer that question for you, and I am not that person. But I know that there is an answer out there. Uh, right. That would be a good thing to raise at the... Uh, luncheon tomorrow because somebody there may know, Lynn May or uh, uh, but Lynn, our president, is a, a charter member of the organization. Mm-hmm. I'm an old user, but I joined it a year or two after it was started. So. Yeah. Okay. I think so. Okay, we're going to end the evening then with um, I'm going to do a, a read a few pieces and then um, anybody wants to um, stay and get um, dues don't spend it all in one slot machine now you know? I'm yeah. going to give you this right away because you're going to oh you're going to leave we got well we got to get our breakfast yeah okay yeah. All right, well, we I got just, breakfast to go to I just want oh, so do I. I just want to thank you all for I want to thank um, you for for helping us out with um, being a runner and being a money collector and and ticket collector, ticket ticker, ticket ticker. All right, most of these have tickets, and then all the money that's in there, I got my bills. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you. All right, um, being in a, a gambling venue. I thought that I would at least three, I'm going to read four little pieces, and three of them are going to have a gambling theme. Um, And they're going to be a tribute to the Riviera Hotel. I was so saddened when it was demolished last year. I just just cried. Uh, I cried when I heard it was going to be demolished, and I was following the newspaper stories about it. I'm going to start by reading two poems that were written at the Riviera. And the one I may have already shared with you, um, back when we were there in 2005, I didn't go to the banquet one night. I I, I hadn't purchased tickets, and I I just didn't go. 
and I was alone, and everybody that I didn't think were, was going to go to the banquet went to the banquet. So I decided, well, maybe I'd go down and be bohemian and sit in this cafe, the casino cafe, and do some writing, and then maybe even play a little slots. And so what happened was I, I wrote, I was inspired to write this poem, and then I decided to try to recapture the feeling back in 2014 when we returned. Okay, this is being recorded, remember? Okay. So I, I wrote a, a second poem. I tried to revisit the cafe, and there were a lot of changes, and that's why. So I'm going to read this pair of poems. The first one was from 2005. It's called In a Casino Cafe. Alone she sits in a casino cafe. All around her the people play. The cacophony of voices shows in slots. But to her, these sounds don't mean a lot. They only remind her how much she's alone, how far she is from family, friends, and home. She would love to play if only a cent, but she feels like money that has all been spent. She longs to gamble, love, and live, but she has given all that she has to give. Now the stakes are too high, and her hopes are too low, and there's no one and nowhere to which she can go. So she pays for her food and walks out the door. I wonder if we'll ever see her anymore. What's that? Um, well, we're going to, um, um, the second poem is sort of a follow-up, and if you want to make some, would you have any commentary on the first one, or do you want to hear the second and the pair? Go ahead and do the second. Okay, this one was nine years later, and um, this one is called Casino Cafe Revisited. Okay. Casino Cafe Revisited. Nine years have passed since that fateful day when she first visited that casino cafe. Nine years to worry, nine years to cry, nine years to simply wonder why. Nine years to search for purpose and love. Nine years to pray to the Lord above. Nine more years of wrinkles upon her brow have aged her and brought her to where she is now. She's returned to Las Vegas and chosen today to revisit that little casino cafe. It wasn't the way it was before, but she took a deep breath and opened the door. The cafe was filled with a boisterous crowd and smoke and music that was too, too loud. There wasn't even a single chair. She wondered what she was doing there. There simply wasn't any room. She felt so alone with her gathering gloom. She stepped out into the casino hall. She listened, but she heard no slots at all. She asked her waitress, 
Where did all the slots, where have all the slots gone? Has someone forgotten to turn them on? The waitress explained that they turned them all down because when someone won, robbers came around. She missed the clamor of the slot machines and she realized she missed all her former dreams. Then she knew it was over. The game was all done. It was too late, and she hadn't won. Okay, what, does anybody have any comments about those two? I don't know. Have you ever had the experience of being in a crowd and being alone? Yeah. Being on the sidelines and watching a parade that you want to be a part of? Yeah, it's it's sort of if you haven't figured it out, it's pro, it's a little. This is autobiographical. Yeah. Yes, I do. Um, could we refrain from talking until after? Because. <laughs> okay. Okay, let's, you know, when, when we're trying to do poetry and things, it sort of destroys the, the mood when people start talking, you know, in the middle. I, I, okay, um, but yeah, yes, um, and I was told that they did turn down the slots, and it, it sort of depressed me. Okay, then came um, May the 4th on, um, two, in 2015, and I was listening to the radio, CBS Radio News Roundup, and I heard that the Riviera had been sold and that it was closing down on noon of that day. And, is this the one in the last Yes, this is where we were. And um, uh, I just bawled, but then I sat down and I wrote this poem. And the last two poems I'm going to read, this one and the last one, it has nothing to do with the Riviera at all, um, are what I call parallel poems, where you get two stories woven together. And there's, you know, and you'll, you'll see what I mean. And one thing I want to refer to that you may not understand is, do you guys remember the clock radio at the Riviera? You could turn to a certain station and it would play these same two classical pieces and just recycle, you know, cycle through them and play them over and over. And I found out the name of one of them was Troy-Marie and because one of my fifth graders played it in a talent show. So I found out the name of that one. And so that's what this is referring to. But anyhow, this one is called Requiem for the Riviera. 
Dorothy is dying. She's closing her eyes for the last time. The Riviera is dying today at noon. She is closing her doors for the last time. Dorothy's face has become dry and wrinkled. Her hair is now silver and gray. The floor of the Riviera's swimming pool has become cracked and discolored. It has seen better days. Every night, Dorothy sang lullabies to her little girl, but now her voice has gone mute as she sleeps in her lacy nightgown. Every night, the Riviera clock radio would lull me to sleep with strains of Troy Marie, but now the music has gone silent. The clock is running down. Dorothy would entertain her friends with music and lavish food, but now no one comes, so she cooks no more, and her stereo is silent and subdued. The Riviera would entertain crowds with lavish floor shows, and the Rat Pack ruled the floor. But now the throngs have quit coming. She's not crowded anymore. Dorothy used to play poker with her husband until midnight or dawn. But now she's playing solitaire. Her husband and cards are all gone. All day and all night played a symphony of slots, and the wheels of fortune were spun. Now the concert is over. The slots are locked down. Final bets have been placed, lost, and won. Dorothy's eyes, which once sparkled with a radiant light, are now feeble, vacuous, and dull. The Rivs stores, once teeming with dazzling delights, are closed, leaving a dark, dingy hall. At the stroke of midnight, Dorothy dies. For the last time, she closes her eyes. At the stroke of noon, the Riviera is closed, and so begins her demise. One last time, Missy fixes Dorothy's hair and applies all her makeup just right. One more time, Mickey polishes the Riv's tile floors and cleans the mirrors until they shine bright. Dorothy's family will have an estate sale All her belongings must go. There will be a public sale of everything in the Riv. It will be her final big show. Soon there will be her funeral. Our dear Dorothy, our dear old friend Dorothy is gone. Soon the Riviera will be imploded, but her memory will always live on. Um, and, it, and she was imploded in two stages. I understand August uh, or July, uh, uh, June of 2016, and then in August they they took down the the uh, the, car, the, the Monte Carlo tile, tower because they found asbestos, and so they you know they took a little longer. So that was. Um, 
Any any comments? Dorothy um, it was two things. It might have been a, a mix of and a melange of characters, or I shouldn't say characters, but ladies, um, very um, old um, ladies that I've known, and maybe my grandparents, my grandmothers, um, but also a way of personifying the Riviera. I mean, she's not a real person, but she's a person that everyone could identify with. And I wanted to liken the Riviera to a woman, to a majestic woman. Yes, and and when a person ages and declines, it's sort of a parallel, isn't it?
And when I was living here, it was becoming very flemish. And just sad to see that happen, because I mean, never what it was like when I was younger. And what's also interesting, too, is, you know, you've got you know, all kinds of memories. You've got good, bad, ugly, embarrassing, yeah. whatever, funny. I mean, you got a whole host all rolled into it. And they're, like I said, they live on. They take on their own life. And they take on their own persona. Exactly. And at this time, the persona was Dorothy. But it could have been anybody. I felt the same way about the Three Rivers Stadium, and I wrote a poem about her too. But I'm going to end because I gave you three downer poems, and I always like to end on a, a positive note. And I'm going to end with a poem that I wrote last October the 15th when I went to a woman's Bible retreat. In Pennsylvania, in the Laurel Mountains, there's a, um, a retreat called Jamonville, and there's an 80-foot cross, and it lights up at night, and it's in the country, and there are you know, cabins, and it's just a wilderness sort of an experience. And one of the things that people do when they go on these journeys is they climb the hill, they climb the mountain, and they go to the cross. And... Um, this poem is called The Still Small Voice. And as writers, I want you all to look for your still small voice, okay? It is based on scripture that I'll share with you. It's um, 1 Kings nineteen eleven to 13. And the scripture goes like this. God said to Elijah, go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind rent the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. And it was so when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the opening of the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him and said, Why are you here, Elijah? So, so that was the inspiration. We all had to do something creative, and we had a, a time of silence. And this is what going up on the mountain yielded. And it's another parallel poem. This is called The Still Small Voice. Elijah was hiding in a cave, afraid and listening for the voice of God. I have been hiding in my own cave, alone and listening for that same still, small voice. God said to Elijah, Go forth and stand upon the mountain before the Lord. God said to me, Go forth and stand upon the mountain beneath the cross. And the Lord passed by Elijah, but he didn't pass by me. He stood by me, and a great and strong wind rent Elijah's mountain and broke his pieces, broke into pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. There was no great wind on my mountain, but a gentle breeze, and the Lord was in that breeze. And after Elijah's wind, there was an earthquake. 
but the Lord was not in the earthquake. For me, there was no earthquake, but the Lord shook my world today. And after Elijah's earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. For me, there was no fire, but the flame of God's love burning inside of me. After the fire, Elijah heard a still, small voice, and he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the opening of the cave. I, too, heard a still, small voice. Now I must wrap myself in my daily garb and stand in the opening of my own personal cave. There was no more hiding for Elijah and there is no more hiding for me. I must come down off this mountain and descend into the valley of reality. There came a voice unto him and said, Why are you here, Elijah? And the same still small voice whispered to me, I know why you are here, Mary Carla. And I want. I don't want to. I want to thank you for reading that as like a closing poem because I was. I thought your first three poems were beautiful, but I was. I really found them depressing, and I was. (laughs) I was thinking, you know, there's got to be. I hope there's another side to Carla. I've known Carla for years, but I haven't known her very well. I feel very uplifted by that poem. That, oh, yeah. That rounds you out as a poet to me, too, yeah. to hear that on top of the others. And grounded. Well, thank you very much. We're, we're leaving. We want to thank you for this experience. Okay, and I just want to entreat all of you to, to find your own small, still small voice in your writing. And it might be a mountaintop experience. It might be a valley experience. But we all have stories to tell, stories to write, stories to discover. And there are lots of small, still small voices to listen to. And I want to thank you all for coming and sharing. And I think we've had a very special night together. <laughs>